This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Okay, Bruce, man, question for you. We still have our tree up. And the way things are going, it may stay there until Valentine's Day. So, A, have you taken your tree down yet? And B, when do you think enough is enough and the tree should go? The tree is down. We took it down Sunday. By January 6th, your tree must come down. <laughs> okay, Ron. My tree's coming down. Another holiday deadline question for you, and it was something I was asked the other day. When is it appropriate, or no, when is it imperative not to say, Happy New Year anymore, or is there any such rule? I think there is. It's the April 15th rule. rule. Nothing is happy about that part of the New Year, unless you're the taxman. <laughs> April 15th. Okay. Well, it's a Happy New Year for a lot of people out there, and we have two of them with us today. The former Raiders quarterback and coach, Tom Flores, and former Arizona State, Arizona Cardinals and Denver Broncos quarterback Jake Plummer. Now, Tom is a first-time nominee for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. In fact, he's one of 15 for the Modern Era class of 2019, while Jake this week was named to the College Football Hall of Fame class of 2019, so he's already in. We'll also hear from our longtime friend, NFL historian John Turney of Pro Football Journal, who will dissect this year's Hall of Fame finalists, as well as the 2018 NFL All-Pro first and second teams. And Goose, all of us vote on that team. What do you think? Well, a couple of surprises, a couple of disappointments. Only 15 of the guys I voted for made the first team. There were, But there were three or four good options at every position, so I have no real complaints. I voted Mahomes at quarterback, and frankly, that's the only position people seem to care about. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and Ron, I know you voted for it. Um, what did you think of the, the all-pro team, and how different was it from the, the team that you chose? Um, you know, it was a bit different. Uh, um, wide receivers, I had those guys first. I don't quite see how you, you know, like Antonio Brown or not. See how you you can't say he's one of the two best receivers in the league. But, uh, there seems to be a mounting uh, a backlash against Antonio. So yeah, that's well, at least from one voter, at least from one voter. Uh, yeah. Well, let's just hoping that John Turney can help us make sense of that list, and, and then we can get his take on this year's Hall of Fame class of 2019 finalists as well. So we have a lot to get to, and we will right after this. Oh, and by the way, Ron, Happy New Year. Yep. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Before we get to the Hall of Fame 2019 finalists, I've got to hear that audio from last weekend one more time. God, that was good. Hey, Robert, and that's Robert Harris Jr., our producer, who just re-signed with us as a free agent. Welcome back, Robert. Robert, can you pull up the audio on Cody Parkey's missed field goal? Um... In Espanol, because you want to talk about Hall of Fame? This is first ball stuff. Pie de Cody Parkey. 43 yardas. El snap. Le mete el pie. Distancia, dirección. Le dio el poste. No, falló. Señor, no, señor. No, señor. No, señor. No, señor. No, señor. Los hijos se van con la victoria. Ay, papá. Chicago, Chicago, nos vamos para New 
Bruce, that was Ricky Ricardo on the call. Honest, Ricky Ricardo. You can't make this stuff up. Yeah, my favorite line was, no, senor, which you repeated about a dozen times. I kept, kept waiting for Lucy to chime in. <laughs> well, i got to say, that, Ronnie. Chicago, Chicago, not going to New Orleans was priceless. <laughs> not listening to that guy than Joe Tessitore, I thought, I'm like, I can't understand either guy. At least Ricky Ricardo makes sense. Si, senor, si, senor. <laughs> well, too bad we can't have uh, Ricky Ricardo announce the Hall's class of 2019. That might be unforgettable, too. But as Ricky would say, no, senor. Anyway, we have our 15th finalists, and there are seven on offense, six on defense, and coaches, Tom Flores and Don Coriel. But there are no linebackers from the 25 semifinalists and 13 defenders who were cut by 54% to six to the finalists. Disappointing, guys. Ron, do you find that disappointing? Well, yeah. I mean, for those of us like Bruce and I, who believe defense is uh, at least 50% of the game, it was. Uh, you know, four offensive linemen and not a single linebacker. I mean, not one of those linebackers was as worthy uh, as at least one of those four offensive linemen, really. I mean, uh, uh, now, to be fair, I think the five defensive backs probably hurt the linebackers a little bit, too. But, uh, you know, that was, to me, a little troubling. So much defense disappeared, as usual. Yeah, it, the continued offensive lean bothers me. In the game's modern era from 1960 on, there have been a, there's been a 60-40 Hall of Fame split favoring offense. It looked like the voters were serious about chipping away at the imbalance with the slate of semifinals for the class of 2019 that included nine offensive players and 13 defensive players. And you gave us numbers that, that 13 got whacked down to, what, six. And it's not fair. that This committee clearly loves offense. It's not fair to a lot of great defensive players. Okay, Ron, so let's start with the first-time finalists. I mean, there are three of them uh, who are first-year eligible. No surprises there. That's Ed Reed, Tony Gonzalez, Champ Bailey. Um, I mean, Reed and Gonzalez is slam dunks his first ballot, guys, and maybe Bailey makes it too. But there are a couple other guys who are first-time finalists. One of them is Tom Flores, who's going to join us soon, and former defensive lineman Richard Seymour, who you know a lot about, Ron. Two former Raiders, so I'm assuming uh, that last week was a good one for you, right? Well, yeah, two X-rays and two X-Patriots. Uh, you know, some, in Seymour's case, he was both double-dipping. Uh, uh, you know, one uh, more could a Hall of Fame voter ask for than that. I mean, <laughs> you know, but these guys provide some interesting cases, I think, that are com- good, con- should be compelling to our voters, at least the ones with an open mind. I mean, this would exclude those endlessly labeling three guys as surefire first ballot Hall of Famers. I mean, every year we're going to hear that crap. Surefire first ballot Hall of Famers. I mean, look, there's a lot of excellence on this list. This year, we're going to find out if that still means as much as it should to the voters. You better, hear, you better hope you don't hear that too often, Ron, because that could have implications <laughs> for your guy. That'd be Ty Law. Yeah, no question. No question. I mean, it's, it's gotten crazy, this first out Hall of Fame. It's crazy. gotten crazy. Hey, Goose, I, I said there were no linebackers on this list, and there aren't. That means Carl Mecklenburg is gone at the modern era finals, and I mean gone off into the abyss of the senior pool. And Clay Matthews is now two years removed from joining him. Uh, this is his 18th year of eligibility. Um, that must have made last week, I guess, as grim for you as it was encouraging for Ron. Yeah, Mecklenburg deserved to be discussed as a Hall of Fame candidate, but his 25-year window of eligibility opened and closed without his name ever coming up. The guy played all seven positions, went to six Pro Bowls. His versatility made him Richard Seymour before Richard Seymour, and Seymour has to wait only two years to get in the room. Matthews right. plays 19 seasons, was a complete linebacker, excelled against the run in coverage and rushing the passer. How many linebackers play 19 seasons, and how many played at the level of Clay Matthews? 
but it's been 20, what, 18 years now. This committee has turned its back on Matthews. Mike Mecklenburg, he deserves to be discussed. Yeah, sadly, Goose, I don't think you're going to have those questions answered by the board because I don't think either, well, clearly Mecklenburg didn't make it, and I don't think Matthews is going to get there either. The abyss. He yeah. entered the abyss. Well, um, speaking of Champ Bailey, uh, I've done a quick assessment of this group, and, and to me, guys, the X factor is Champ Bailey. I mean, I think he controls the top of the board. If he doesn't go in, we have three spots open for Gold Jackets, which means maybe two of the four offensive linemen have been waiting could get in, as well as Ron, your guy, Ty Law, or a surprise candidate. Um, but if he is elected, and remember last year we put in five guys with eight years of combined eligibility, eight years. That means there are only two spots available, making it tougher to break the offensive line gridlock and making it tougher, Goose Man, for Ty Law to cross the threshold into the hall. Yeah, I think Ron's got an uphill climb with Law. This committee clearly loves first ballot candidates. They're going to look at Bailey's 12 Pro Bowls and first-team all-decade claim and embrace his candidacy. I know because I presented Everson Wallace a year ago for the first time in his final year of eligibility. He had more interceptions than either Bailey or Law. He was the only cornerback in history to lead the NFL in interceptions. He did it three times. He also had a Super Bowl ring, but he wasn't all-decade. Went to only four Pro Bowls. Off-the-field honors seem to matter more than on-the-field play, as Ron will tell you. Yeah, well, Bruce is right. You know, it's funny to me. Uh... You hear some of these voters, uh, and they uh, they deal the cards however they want. You know, the Pro Bowls are important only unless they're not important. Right. Uh, you know, all decades important uh, unless their candidate doesn't have it, then it's not important. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Talk about a lack of consistency. I mean, I understand why people are getting mad. Uh, you know, everybody is not a first ballot Hall of Famer. As a matter of fact, very few guys are first ballot Hall of Famers. Right. And frankly, John Mackey wasn't. Neither Tony Gonzalez. <laughs> right. Hey, quick, guys. Uh, who's your biggest surprise? Good man? The two coaches on the ballot. Ronnie? Uh, Lynch. You know, he was fading uh, uh, last year. Didn't do as well as the year before, but he's back again, so he clearly has, you know, enough to get in the room. The question is, will he ever have enough to get out of the room? All rise. Here comes the judge. Well, there's a signal that it's my turn to present Aaron Judge. No, wait a minute. That it's my turn to present someone as the next Hall of Fame worthy candidate. And I will. And that's someone who's former Giant star Kyle wrote, whom I wrote about this week on our website, thebetalkoffamenetwork.com. And now, Kyle was an accomplished wide receiver, which I hope at least some of you know. In fact, when he retired after the 1961 season, he led the Giants in career receiving yards, catches and receiving TDs, and he was fifth in scoring. He was also a four-time pole bowler. But that's not what intrigues me about him as much as it is this. He was one of the architects of the Pro Football Players Association, which is a union that today protects and promotes players with a collective bargaining agreement that basically guarantees them free agency, benefits, minimum salaries, and medical, among other things. Well, Kyle was the NFLPA's first president, and he was a Giants player rep for years. Now, granted, he wasn't alone. I understand that. In fact, then-Cleveland GM Creighton Miller was behind the association making it. He made Brown's players its nucleus before reaching out to other teams to gain their support. But that was a giant leap for the NFL. And maybe it happens without Kyle Rhodes, but all I know is it didn't happen without him, which makes him something of a pioneer. Now, if you remember, and I know you guys do, the guy was a star running back at SMU who was so good, he finished second in the Heisman voting in 1950, a year when he played so well in a 27-20 loss to number one Notre Dame. And by the way, Notre Dame had lost previous 37 games, but the Irish 25 years later voted him an honorary member. The Giants also made him the first pick of the 1951 draft, but he was versatile, too. After injuring his knee in his first pro camp, he switched to wide receiver 
the numbers, of course, speak for themselves. He was part of four teams that went to NFL championship games, including three in four years. And he was smart. So smart, in fact, that during his playing career, the Giants actually sent him on the road to scout a game between Green Bay and Chicago. So Cal Rote had an impact on and off the field and has been recognized by a zillion halls of fame that enshrined him, including the College Football Hall and the Texas Pro Football Hall of Fame. It's time that Pro Football Hall of Fame voters get the message and get in line to consider Kyle Rote. And not because he was a magnificent football player, because he was an unforgettable one. Clark, given his work at the Players Association, might he be a better candidate and have a better chance as a contributor than as a player? Yeah, that's a good question, Goose, and I'd say the answer is yes, because you guys work on the Seniors Committee. I don't hear his name at all. I don't think he's a hot candidate. I don't think he's on anyone's short list. And there's so many people in line ahead of him. I don't think he's got a prayer there. I would think that would be the way for him to get in. But, again, there are a lot of contributors ahead of him. He's going to have a chance, and I'm not sure how much of a chance he's got that would be the way for him to go. Hey, thanks for the question, Goose. Good one. But now get ready to ask some more because we have NFL historian John Turney with us to dissect this year's Hall of Fame finalists. That's coming up right after this. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, as promised, we have NFL historian John Turney of Pro Football Journal to talk with us today on what else? More about the Pro Football Hall of Fame's class of 2019 finalists. John, welcome back as always, and Happy New Year. Ron said that's okay to say until April 15th. <laughs> All right, well, happy new year back to you. <laughs> okay, well, first of all, your take on this class. What do you like? What don't you like? Well, the final 15, I was pleased that Richard Seymour at least is going to make it to the final 15. I don't expect him to make it to the final 10, maybe not this year, but I think it sets the table for writers looking at guys that are not the pass rush specialists and it opens the door for maybe Bryant Young down the line. But I would hope to see Richard Seymour get a good presentation. It, it will be very easy to get a stellar recommendation, whoever's presenting him, from Bill Belichick, who just loved the guy. And he's one of those hard-nosed players that plays a difficult position. So that really pleased me to see that he, he broke through, especially with Ty Law, another defender from those early Patriots 2000s teams that won championships. Stellar recommendation. Uh, Ron's presenting him. I don't know the Bill Belichick's going to be talking to Ron anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I did not know that. Uh, okay. Well, John, I, I asked Rick and Ron this earlier, and then I'll ask you now. What or who was the biggest surprise for you? To make it to the final 15? Yes, yeah, from the semifinal. I would have to say, no, it, the surprise was Richard Seymour, but... Um, uh, also, you know, I, I, I thinking Tom Flores leapfrogged Jimmy Johnson, that surprised me a little bit. It's very difficult to separate the coaches that have two Super Bowl wins. Uh, one of the ways you can do it is what they started with and how they did with that and then what they did in their, their second act. Uh, Jimmy Johnson's second act with the Dolphins was certainly better than Tom Flores' second act. Uh, with the Seahawks, and Jimmy Johnson really started with nothing in Dallas, where Tom Flores did take over from a decent John Madden organization, and, and Al Davis, of course, was the constant there. So to me, if you have to compare who did more with less, it would have to be Jimmy Johnson. 
John, st- stack those three quarterbacks or the three co- coaches. Where, where does Coriel fit in this discussion? Well, Coriel fits as you know he doesn't have the Super Bowl wins. He has to be as an innovator, a Clark Shaughnessy type innovator who changed the game and how many people started using his system. And until the mid 2000s, the Air Coriel system was part of that that whole kind of what was the original West Coast offense where they're using the three digits and things like that. So, he, you know, Joe Gibbs comes from him. Um, you know, Jason Garrett there in Dallas kind of comes from him in that sense. So that was one of the two major offenses that were used in, in the last 40 years. So I think as an innovator, as using the whole field, uh, they wanted to stretch it not only vertically but horizontally. So that's where he gets his juice, his gravitas, in my opinion. If you were to put one of those guys in, which one would it be? Oh, between Flores and Coriel. And Johnson. Uh, of those three, I would have to go with Jimmy Johnson, and I would have to go with uh, Coriel second. Okay. I think Flores, you know, I don't want to, you know, he did a great, great job, but I don't think anybody knows any kind of innovations he did as a coach. I don't think uh, his second act was all that great. I think he had kind of a stacked team, and you have to give him credit for that. But if you have to separate, and remember, when you have people with virtually equal credentials, you do have to nitpick a little bit. So I'm nitpicking, and I put Johnson first, Coriel second. Okay, now, now stack the four offensive linemen in terms of Hall of Fame worthiness. Well, uh, I would have to say Hutchinson first, Baselli second, and then the other two. And not that the all-pros are bad for any of them, because those things are important, but in terms of the extra awards, Offensive Lineman of the Year, Baselli and Hutchinson did a better job in garnering those than the other two. So that gives them, I think, a little bit of an extra thing. And, and you guys know Pro Scout Inc. and how they rank players and, and what their system is. And clearly the two that I mentioned are, are far above Mawai and Fanica. Uh, just in terms of playing their position and what's looked for in guards and guard skills. So that's to the degree that the voters give Pro Scout Inc. any kind of uh, credence. And we can talk about these things because they've been retired for five years. Uh, you know, I could share certain things with you about current players, but you know, that's not allowed at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, I don't like to hear that, John, because it reminds me of that Saturday Night Live skit on Downton Abbey when they talked about the females in the family. <laughs> they said, there's the hot one, the really hot one, and the other one. <laughs> so like Kevin Mawai and Alan Fanica and the other two guys. You know, those other two guys. But I, I don't know. I think one of those two guys, especially Kevin Mawai, I think he's got a real shot um, because he's got, there's a lot of juice in that room for him. And, and he comes from New York and went to Tennessee, and I think a lot of people behind it. But anyway, I want to move on to another position. And that's cornerback. Ron's got to present Ty Law. But we've got Champ Bailey now suddenly in the mix, and, and he's going to be probably a, a top-ten guy, and he may be a, a first-ballot guy. But if you were to put one of these two guys in, Law or Bailey, this year, this year, who would it be? Well, if it has to be this year, I think it, it, in all fairness it should be Ty Law. And I don't know if you folks saw the post we did uh, by Nick Webster, one of our writers, on Ty Law and Champ Bailey. Mm -hmm. But it uh, pulls out the statistics from Stats, Inc. that they've been publishing since the early 90s. 
and it's the individual passer rating. Of course, all stats are going to be skewed in some ways, but if they do them fairly for everybody and do it honestly, then you have to be considered. And so when you have two people that are both qualified, then you have to say, why were, why were Ty Law's best seasons better than Champ Bailey's? Why were, the, were the, his poorer seasons better than Champ Bailey's poorer seasons? And it kind of shows that Ty Law was doing a lot of man-to-man coverage. And, and I'm not trying to disparage Champ Bailey at all. I just question whether he has truly got the stuff of a first ballot Hall of Famer, if that means anything anymore. Yeah, okay. I don't think it really does. <laughs> it really, I mean, yeah, it seems like everyone's getting in first ballot. Well, that and we, you know, it goes back to you know to, to even players I love like Jackie Slater and, and even a few others that you're going like, well, first ballot. I don't know about that. Yeah. So right. I would say, and Ty Law's got the rings. He was part of championships, and uh, I think. Of the two this year, I think it would only be right to put in Ty Law first. John, who's the best offensive skill player among the finalists? Edgerin James, Isaac Bruce, or Tony Gonzalez? Mm, well, Tony Gonzalez, I think, is just a foregone conclusion. But I love Edgerin James, not just because he was a great runner, came in and led the league in rushing. He could catch the ball. But he was a tremendous pass blocker. He is on my top five or six of the best pass-protecting running backs of all time. Walter Payton, John Henry Johnson, Marco, Mar- Marshall Falk, Edron James, Emmett Smith, and then you could probably throw in LaDainian Tomlinson. And there's getting to be more and more of these guys. But in terms of if you want to play a game in the 2000s with a running back, he's one you would want to choose because he can do it all and do it all very well. John, I want to ask you about a guy that we've talked about on the show many times, and and that's John Lynch. He seems to have lost his juice. I mean, he was a – he's been a finalist for, I think, six straight years now, and he was a uh, top-ten finalist in 2016 and 2017, but last year moved in the wrong direction. He he did make the cut from 15 to 10. From your outside perspective, you're outside that room, you're watching what goes on, do you think he's lost his momentum for good? Can he regain it? Do you consider John Lynch a pro football Hall of Famer? I think he's lost his momentum for now because I think there's other good safeties coming up who did more things. And do I consider him a Hall of Famer? That's a tough question in the sense that he's on the borderline, I would put it that way. He was known as a Tampa – he played in the Tampa 2. And what does Tampa 2 mean? He was a half-the-field safety a lot of the times. But for a half-the-field safety, even though he was a strong safety, he had very few picks, I think 26 in his career. But then he's try- they're trying to sell him as more of an in-the-box safety. And then you're going, well, wait a minute, that's not what they really played all the time. They were a too-deep defense much of the time. Now, of course, he played down in the box some. All strong safeties do when they expect run. So as a too-deep safety, even as a strong safety, you would expect more interceptions the kind of guy that can make an interception from the backside of a two-deep defense. If you can imagine a, a pass going to you know, maybe across the middle and he's got to come back from the backside and pick it off. Uh, Ed Reed did things like that. Even great players like Nolan Cromwell did that when he was a strong safety. I don't think, Ed L- I don't think uh, John Lynch had that kind of skill. He was a tremendous hitter and a great tackler. I think that's what his claim to fame is. And then people have to ask, is that Hall of Fame stuff, or do you want to go with 
somebody like a Leroy Butler who could cover and hit and rush the passer and get sacks and pick off the ball. So where are you at in Atwater? Atwater is, I don't expect him to make the final ten. But again, you know, he's a little closer to Hall of Fame. I would put him ahead of John Lynch, to be honest with you. He does have two signature plays, the Christian Okoye tackle and the point-blank interception from uh, Jay Schrader. I think you guys will remember that one early right. in the season, is uh, his rookie year. It was just incredible. Yeah, oh, John, thanks so much for the time. And, and, and do me a favor, would you please? Would you stick around? Because we'd like to talk to you in the second hour. So can you stick around? Sure, absolutely. That's great. Thanks, John. That was NFL historian John Turney, and this is the Talk of Fame Network. Coming up, Hall of Fame finalist Tom Flores. And by the way, as you just heard, a finalist for the first time. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Tom Flores has been eligible for the Pro Football Hall of Fame for 45 years, and he had never been thanked, even as fans, so you couldn't blame him. He'd given up hope. But arguably, the most important Hispanic player in Pro Football history will finally have his credentials debated next month after being named one of this year's 15 finalists last week. Tom has visited the Talk of Fame Network several times before. Now he's back today to discuss his chances, his resume, and how it finally felt to hear his name called. Tom, congratulations, and welcome back. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, kind of exciting, uh, not kind of, a very exciting time in my life right now. And this next uh, few weeks is going to be nail-biting. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we brought your name up uh, a number of times over the past few years. But we, of course, were excited here at the Talk of Fame that you made the finals. But how did the Iceman react when he got the news? Did you melt? Yeah, kind of, sort of. When I got the news, I, I choked up a little bit. I had a lump in my throat. I had some tears in my eyes. and It was kind of hard to talk because uh, the anticipation sometimes is greater than than the, uh, the actual fact itself. And when it became a fact, uh, I was... I was kind of, to be honest with you, I was kind of taken back because uh, I didn't think it was going to happen. But I'm happy and uh, I'm going to enjoy this time of my life. Tom, has your phone been ringing off the hook? Who have you heard from since the news came out? Well, I heard from all kinds of people from coast to coast. You know, friends of mine, uh, former players, former coaches, teammates, uh, relatives, obviously. one of the, one of the uh, one of the uh, also the final fifteen. Kevin Mawai gave me a, a, a couldn't not a call, but he, he gave me a text. Uh, I drafted him when I was in Seattle, <laughs> and uh, he's always been one of my favorite guys. So, you know, it's just uh, been on and on, uh, one run after another. And so it's uh, people come out of the woodwork sometimes because they remember you and and you were important in their lives and they're important in my life. Now, of course, uh, so, some people will get some perspective here, Tom. You turned uh, lead 81 in March. You haven't played a game in 45 years. You had not been a head coach in 24 years. Had you given up hope, even though your name was kind of out there the last few years? 
Well, I never give up hope, but I wasn't too excited about the possibility, you know, because I, you know, there's different various categories that I kind of fit in, and, and I didn't know where I was going to fit in the whole picture. And it's not easy to get that you know, that uh, this far. There's so many guys that are worthy, and uh, so many names are thrown out there. So many people are coming from all different directions and plugging for their guys. So it's you know, it's uh, the system is uh, is complicated, but basically pretty simple when you think of the bottom line. Do they deserve to be there? Are they part of history and things of that night, that type? Mm-hmm. Tom, you want a four coaches to win two Super Bowls and not be inducted in Canton. You have the second-best postseason winning percentage of any coach with 10 or more playoff appearances behind only Vince Lombardi. So why are you still waiting? That's a good question. I don't know. You know I don't know. You know, I, you know a, lot, a lot of little things that, that uh, some people don't take into consideration. You know, we won yeah, two of my um, one of I won two Super Bowls as the head coach, and uh, in two different cities, Oakland and then L.A. Living in a hotel for fourteen months, and also working for Al Davis. That in itself deserves some <laughs> consideration. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly right. You had to be in the hall of something just for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Al was. Al told me once. He said, "Maybe I'm the wrong guy to be pushing for you because he was pushing hard, but but uh, he, he knew his reputation out there, and and he he was a dear friend. But and and, and the Raider organization has really done a lot in recent months and recent weeks uh, to help me get where I am. Now you have, uh, of course, the, the first Hispanic starting quarterback in pro football history. You were the first minority head coach of any club to win the Super Bowl. You were the first Hispanic to serve as an NFL club president. Um, did you ever feel the weight of history when you took over any of those positions? And if you did, which one felt the heaviest? Well, I never thought, you know, that much about it, you know, because I always figured that I had uh, earned the right uh, to be you know, whatever I was, a starting quarterback or a head coach or president general manager, I earned the right to get there. The fact that I was uh, Hispanic heritage uh, shouldn't have mattered, but it did matter. It mattered because of the pride in uh, in certain you know, races around the country, ethnic groups, and Hispanics certainly are a big part of, uh, especially in California and the West Coast and the South, uh, the Texas area. So I didn't find out until later uh, – how important it was to them. Just complete strangers would come up and say, you won your first Super Bowl, and my father cried. And I didn't even know these people. My father cried. I said, really? I said, yeah, he was in front of the TV crying because you had won and you were Hispanic. I said, I'll be darned. Tom, after finishing your career at the College of Pacific, you were released by the Calgary Stampeders and Washington Redskins and wound up playing with the Salinas Packers of the Pacific Coast Conference. Had there been no AFL in 1960, would we be talking to you today, and if not, what do you think you'd be doing? Well, if it hadn't been for the uh, the uh, Oakland Raiders being the last you know franchise awarded to the AFL, and uh, my availability, and um, and a couple of friends that recommended me, and uh, I don't know, I would I would have been teaching, coaching someplace because that's what I had prepared myself to do. In college, uh, that was my major education, and uh, so I, I, in fact, I turned down a, a job in my home area of Fresno, California, in, uh, in a high school, um, 
to go to the tryout for the Raiders. Um, I figured, I said, well, you know, I've got, uh, I don't owe any money. I don't own a car. I'm single. Uh, I got the rest of my life to work. Why not give it a shot? 1960. And what year are we now? 58 years ago. <laughs> Here I still am. Here I still am in the in the national football or professional football. And uh, it's been a tremendous journey for me and yeah. rewarding. And um, I'm not done yet. You know, I've, I don't think I've ever asked you this, Dom, many of the things we've talked about, but uh, what exactly was it like playing for the Salinas Packers? Uh, <laughs> you know, you played at COP, and, you know, you had at least a touch of a pro football, both in Canada and the United States. What was it like to go there and, 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 well, and play football? I was, I was, yeah, I was helping out with uh, Moose Myers, uh, and uh, he was the head coach at, uh, at Pacific College of Pacific. I went back. I was doing graduate work, working on my master's degree. He brought. He, he was the first one to call. Say, get get back here, and you know we'll find something for you to do. And actually, it wasn't Selena Packers. It was the Bakersfield Spoilers. I played for. I played against the Selena Packers. Oh, who was some of the guys. So this was the Bakersfield Spoilers. This was even a bigger name. <laughs> and so we're we're uh, and, and and I played because it was fun. It was. You know, I didn't have to practice. I just showed up on game day, and. Uh, and I got a hundred dollars. Hey, hundred dollars in the late fifties was a lot of money. So um, I didn't have, you know, I, didn't have, I wasn't making any money. So I, I did it for the love of the game and the hundred dollars. So whichever one was more important at that time, probably the love of the, probably the hundred bucks. <laughs> <laughs> probably so. Uh, you're one of only twenty guys to have played uh, all ten years in the AFL. Um, and you played as the backup quarterback in that 69 Chiefs team that won the final AFL-NFL championship game that really proved that the AFL had become the equal of the NFL and kind of legitimized uh, the merger. Uh, how much did those, uh, did that win and those 10 years uh, mean to you today? That's quite a bit. I, I'm, very, I'm really proud of that, uh, of that accomplishment, of, of, of being part of something that was just a startup and not the destined to to uh, fail and and uh, put down day in and day out we were using the, the last page of the sports section and we'd be in uh, New York and they'd, they'd want to know where Oakland was and uh, and if we were a professional team we had to look at each other sometimes and say are we a professional team I don't know <laughs> we were, I think we are and uh, waiting for our check sometimes to make sure they didn't bounce it um, all those things come into play, but to persevere and, and for t- 20 of us and, and all the, th- the thousands that went through there to uh, have been there for, for the, the 10 years and to be part of what has grown as the biggest industry in sports right now, um, that's, that's something to be proud of. You're part of history. Too. Like everything else, it's part of history, and uh, you were, we were part of history, all 20 of us. Tom, considering all the political chatter about immigration and talk of building a wall between Mexico and the U.S., beyond the obvious football honor, what would putting on that gold jacket mean to the son of a man who came to the United States from Durango, Mexico, 100 years ago this year, at the age of 12, to start a new life? It would mean a lot. Uh, it would mean a tremendous... Um, it would just mean a lot. I wish my mom and dad were still alive. I wish my brother was still alive. He, he died... Unfortunately, uh, way too soon, 
and uh, I still have some relatives, but not too many of my elders. Uh, it would just mean a lot of, uh, because of what we all went through, my friends, uh, my college friends, high school friends, my hometown of Sager, California. Um, it just, uh, it's kind of hard to put in words what it means. Uh, it's a feeling you have that uh, of, of pride, and, and that it'll be historically, it'll be a, you know, if this happens, uh, a place to, to uh, for my children and my grandchildren to revere, a place to go see Grandpa. There, look, at there's Grandpa there, in the gold bust. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as you mentioned, Lloyd, in 1980, you led the Raiders to become the first wild card to win the Super Bowl. 1983, you led a team that had been through a strike short in the season the year before. And you were commuting back and forth between Oakland and L.A., living in a hotel for 14 months, as you point out, uh, to win another Super Bowl. Which one of those two tasks was more difficult, the wild card win or the sort of L.A., Oakland, living in a hotel uncertainty? Well, they both had their, their ups and downs, but the, the wild card was, I think, our finest accomplishment because how we did it. We, it was only my second year as head coach, uh, the team was in a rebuild. Uh, we had we had traded Stabler away. We had traded Casper away. Uh, we brought in we brought Ray Chester back. We resurrected Jim Pluckett when Pastor Eddie got hurt. We got Bobby Chandler from Buffalo. Uh, Burgess Owens, uh was we got him from the Jets. Uh, and on and on, you know. We we had Upshaw Shell still had another year of, of play left in their bodies, and uh, Matt Miller was a rookie. But we still had enough great leaders. We still had enough players that knew how to win, and the organization knew how to win. And I had been with them for, for seven years through winning years and through Super Bowl Eleven. So when we put this all together, and we were stumbled. We were stumbling at first, uh, but then all of a sudden we caught fire, and then and then we started getting better and better. And we peaked at the end and, and uh, managed to do it as the first wild card ever to, to go all the way. And uh, that was quite an accomplishment. Uh, still remember the day uh, we played Cleveland in Cleveland, and the chill factor was 39 below, and it, yeah. it was cold. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and we and Red Right, I remember Red Right 88. That was the yeah. interception by Mike Davis in that the old stadium of theirs. And Mike Davis, if you, if you threw him ten balls, he dropped nine of them, just playing catch. <laughs> <laughs> but but that was the million dollar catch for him, and then we went on from there and and beat the Chargers in San Diego, and, and it was a magical year for us. Tom, we'd like to thank you for coming on with us and wish you the very best of luck uh, in February, and we, we hope to see you in Atlanta. Thank you very much. I appreciate all the help. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. See you next month. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, Robert, we haven't seen you in over six months, so we'd like you to introduce this next segment. That's the two-minute warning. Thanks, Robert. That means it's a two-minute drill. So, Ronnie, get us started. Is there room in the hall of bus for the bully of blimp? Put the blimp in with Tom Brady, and he can deflate it to fit. <laughs> yes, it can house big country baker. It can house the blimp. He <laughs> <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Mike Mayock said, quote, at the end of the day, I guarantee you John Gruden and I are going to know what a Raider looks like and smells like. 
And does he agree with Gruden that Khalil Mack and Amari Cooper stunk enough to accept low first-round picks for them? Mike Mayak will discover it's harder to make a great pick in the draft than to talk about it on a TV set. <laughs> you better agree, Ron. Gruden makes all the calls. Question back to you. How do you define a first-round Hall of Fame? Jim Brown, John Unitas, Dick Butkus, Joe Green, and everyone else can wait. Todd Rundgren. <laughs> <laughs> I think not. Is everyone who ever made a play after the year 2000 now a first out Hall of Famer? Apparently not, because Tylon and Richard Seymour still aren't in. <laughs> yeah, I'd say no. Andrew Lloyd Webber made a play, and I wouldn't put him in, Ron. <laughs> you say he's seven DBs and Tom Brady's future or something? I'm guessing the Chargers will spend more time blitzing Brady this Sunday than they did Lamar Jackson last Sunday. No, Ron, it's in Tom Brady's past. It worked for Rex in 2010. True. Chargers coach Anthony says his defense has faced more, more Brady types than Lamar Jackson types. What's a Brady type? A pocket passer, not a runner. There is no such thing. Bill, I'm telling poor guy, our friend, almost seven against the Patriots. Will it be the same sad song on Sunday? The Chargers are the most complete team in the AFC playoff bracket. No, it won't, Ron. It will be 0-8. Could <laughs> Clemson beat the Cardinals? Not with a freshman quarterback against Arizona's only strength, its pass rush. No, it couldn't, but neither could the 49ers. That's the end of the that's the end of our first hour, but don't go away. We have more from John Turney on the All-Pro team. Jake Plummer is in the house, and Goose has some bad news. He has bad news for Chargers fans. So stay where you are. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. A week ago, we lost a valued member of our fraternity and a longtime friend and colleague of ours was Jerry McGee. The San Diego Union Tribune died. Now, Jerry was 90, so as I say, he had a good run. But I worked alongside Jerry for years when we each covered the Chargers. And I will say this. I never, ever thought of him as old, frail, or infirm. And somehow, somehow believed he'd be one of those guys who would last forever. He was smart. He was tough. He was funny. And he was a wonderful storyteller, reporter, and columnist. Basically, good as you know. He was a treasure. Yeah, and very opinionated. I, I remember a playoff game I covered with Jerry in the 90s between Detroit and Green Bay. The Packers were a six-point favorite and took an intentional safety in the closing seconds when the punter ran out of the end zone to ice the game. <laughs> Except the safety made the score 16-12, allowing the Lions to cover the point spread. Jerry went ballistic on the sideline when that happened, babbling about the spread, and wind up writing his game column about the Lions covering the spread. <laughs> I remember it because it was the first question he asked Holmgren afterwards. I remember that. Why did you take the safety? You know, speaking of playoffs, I remember the 94 playoffs. I moved it up to Santa Clara by that time covering the 49ers. And he went up to Deion Sanders, who had a collection of people around him, of course, because he was the 94 defensive player of the year. And he asked him, Deion, why do you feel it's so necessary to adorn yourself with such jewelry? Well, that immediately shut <laughs> down the interview. And reporters came up to me, claimed, complained afterwards, your friend asked a stupid question. And I said, what? We're talking about a stupid question. It's a good question. I'd like to know, too. Why does he wear that jewelry, Ron? <laughs> yeah, Jerry was a guy with a, with a, with a million stories. My famous one always is the, when, he, when he knew that the United States was going to be traded to the Chargers. 
And in those days, like most uh, newspaper guys, Jerry would uh, have a couple of cocktails during the day. And so he told them uh, that he was going across the street to have dinner, send a copy kit over when it, when it came down that the, the trade was official, he'd write the story. So by the time the kid came over, he'd have a few. And so I just tell Phil Collier. So they come back to the paper, and the sports editor decides, well, Collier's a little more capable of typing than Jerry, so Jerry will dictate the story. So they go in the back of the room. Jerry's got the cheroot in his mouth, clock's ticking, clock's ticking. Finally, the sports editor comes down. It's getting close to deadline. Jerry's sitting there. He's got his hands behind his head, cheroot in his mouth, feet up on a desk. Phil Collier's hunched over a typewriter, and he says, how's that story going? And Collier cranks at his old real typewriter, believe it or not. Pulls up the paper goes, by Jerry McGee. Anyway, oh, Jerry, thanks. thanks for doing that, and thanks for the memories. We'll get back to you right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, the College Football Hall of Fame announced its class of 2019 this week, and it included such familiar names as linebacker London Fletcher and Torrey Holt, both of whom were Hall of Fame semifinalists, as well as former quarterback Vince Young, wide receiver Rocket Ismail, safety Troy Palomalu, and quarterback Jake Plummer will be joining us shortly. But guys, what I loved about this list wasn't necessarily these guys, even though it's nice to see the deserving rewarded, but really one out-of-the-box choice, and that was the 19, I'm sorry, the 2019 honorary inductee, none other than the Goodyear Blimp. Was that your idea, Ron? Because it was a good one. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. I mean, every hall needs a, uh, needs a gas bag, and, and they, they got a real one. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this, and Goose, I'll start with you. If you could make someone or something an honorary inductee for the 2019 Pro Football Hall of Fame, who or what would it be? Lambeau Field. No stadium defines the NFL like Lambeau. That should be a bucket list item for all serious NFL fans. Ronnie? Well, for me, it'd be old Buck O'Kilroy. Uh, we talked about him before. He's the essence of a contributor. He's an all-decade player. He was a coach. He was a longtime scout and GM. And he really was the brains behind the whole Cowboy scouting system. Everybody else got credit, but went up to Bell, tried to steal it for the Patriots in 1971. The guy he went out and hired was Buck O'Kilroy. I think uh, it'd be great to uh, see him finally get recognized. Well, I'm going to recognize someone or something else from the Cowboys, Ron. I think I'd make it the Cowboys bus. Because it's kind of like Jerry's Amex card, Goose. We won't leave home without it. I mean, you ever been on it, Goose, man? <laughs> yeah, I've been on it. I've been on the bus. <laughs> yeah. Well, Goose knows. One word of remembrance here. What happens on the bus? Stays on the bus. Stays on the bus. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Moving on. Uh, speaking of people who were rewarded the past week. About Juju Smith-Schuster, and, and no, this has nothing to do with his replacing Antonio Brown in the Pro Bowl, but Juju Smith-Schuster is this year's Polynesian Pro Football Player of the Year. True. I mean, the Polynesian Football Hall of Fame, and we had Jesse Sapolo on here a couple of years ago, if you remember, guys, to tell us about the Polynesian Pro Football Hall of Fame, or the Football Hall of Fame. Well, that Football Hall of Fame made the announcement and it's the second straight year that Juju, who's of Samoan ancestry, by the way, has won the award. Of course, that comes on top of his winning the Steelers team MVP. But that's another story for another day. Um, the formal presentation is going to be made on January 19th in Honolulu, Ron. And a uh, quick question. Any chance that Talk to Fame Network 
could send us there? <laughs> well, maybe we can take uh, we can get there if we take Antonio Brown with us. He'll probably say he wants a Polynesian food, and hence should have been MVP. <laughs> <laughs> I think Antonio's going to order the poo-poo platter. Hey, the Gooseman. poo platter, yeah, exactly right. You're a money guy. Can we swing this? Can we swing this trip to uh, Honolulu? Sure, we can all go. And on January 20th, we'll be officially broke and filing for bankruptcy. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's fine with me. I'm staying there because what happens there stays there, too. Anyway, congratulations to Juju Smith-Schuster. And congratulations, by the way, to Jared Allen, Keith Bullock, Mark Bolger, Michael Roos, because they're involved in, get this, curling. With a four-minute four team that last week competed at the USA Men's Challenge Round in Blaine, Minnesota. Wherever Blaine is, with the hope that they can one day represent... The U.S. in curling at the 2020 Winter Olympics. Goose, you know anything about curling? Yes, I know Canadians have dominated that sport. I think it was a sport created for Canadians who didn't play hockey. Michael Roos grew up in Canada, so I assume he'd be the captain of that NFL curling team. Yeah, well, he's going to be the captain, but not for long, Goose. Uh, They didn't have a good weekend. (laughs) <laughs> they, they lost three out of three matches and were disqualified. So captain of a sinking ship. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Along with us in Hawaii in the SS Minnow. Ace of Goose. Is this a gimmick or do you think it's a real deal? What's going on with it? Do you think these guys are legit for doing this? Well, Herschel Walker competed in the 92 Olympics in the bobsled. There's no right. question in the athleticism of professional athletes. The question is, can they get down the nuances of a sport with no real background? Do I see this group of NFL NFLers meddling at the Olympics? No, I do not. <laughs> How about you, Ron? Well, I know this. There is no neater guy in in the world than our man Rick Gossett. So if they got him on the broom, let me tell you, sweet, 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 I'll bet you too. Those two guys, those two guys are, they're, they're first out of Hall of Famers. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, speaking of which, uh, I want to note uh, another first ballot Hall of Famer, and that would be Houston wide receiver DeAndre Hopkins. Uh, no, he's not in Canton, nor is he eligible, but he might be one day. And, and guys, on a serious note, and a very serious note, he made a Hall of Fame gesture, I thought, last week when he donated his playoff check to the family of that seven-year-old girl who was killed in a drive-by shooting. Now, I'm not sure what it is about Houston, but J.J. Watt, Andrew Hopkins, Deshaun Watson, man, um, they have some quality young men there trying to do a lot of good, Ronnie. Uh, Now if they could just win a playoff game. (laughs) Yeah, that's the whole problem. But but they certainly do. You know, a lot of teams talk about about drafting high-character guys, uh, but the Texans actually seem to uh, uh, be putting their traffic with them up. And, it, you know, yes. it's really paying dividends for their team and also for the city of Houston. I think it's terrific what those guys have done. Trust okay. me, Texas is a very generous and very giving state. God bless Texas. <laughs> well, Goose, since you're in Texas, that means you're very generous and giving towards our trip to Honolulu. <laughs> yeah, we got the big bankroll with the Talk of Fame Network Bank. <laughs> well, speaking of quality people, our Rick Goslin, a.k.a. Dr. Data, is up next with... Uh-oh. Bad news for Chargers fans, right, Goose? Yes, sir. The Los Angeles Chargers won 12 games a season and are the only team remaining in the playoffs that finished in the top 10 in both offense and defense. Yet the Chargers are competing as a wild card 
which you think would make them unique, except that it doesn't. In fact, the Chargers are the 21st team since the NFL went to a 16-game schedule to finish 12-4 and and qualify for the playoffs as merely a wild card. Now the bad news. Only two of their previous 20 went on to win the Super Bowl. The first was the 1997 Denver Broncos with Hall of Fame quarterback John Elway. The second was the 2000 Baltimore Ravens with Hall of Fame middle linebacker Ray Lewis. The Chargers proved their postseason worthiness by defeating the NFC, excuse me, the AFC North champion Ravens last weekend, 23 to 17. But such a first-round upset was predictable. The previous 12 and 4 wild cards posted a 13 and 7 record in the opening round of the playoffs. It's the second round that gets sticky when that wild card must again board an airplane and go play a rested division champion that had two weeks to heal and prepare. Those 12-win wild cards are only 6-7 and seven in the second round, including a 1-3 mark since the Ravens won that Super Bowl in the 2000 season. The lone victory came in the 2013 playoffs when Colin Kaepernick, remember him? Steered, it's Colin Kaepernick, you got him. Steered the 49ers to 23-10 road win over the Carolina Panthers. But Philip Rivers will have a, a much taller challenge than Kaepernick. Rivers and the Chargers must travel to Foxborough to play the defending AFC champion and five-time Super Bowl champion New England Patriots. Not only must the Chargers defeat another division champion, they must defeat a championship aura. There's no question the Chargers have the talent to advance. They just don't have the history. Well, who's man? Is it the travel itself that uh, kills these guys, you think, or is it just the long odds of, of continuing to win? You know, the, the Chargers are the only team in, in the league that's in a top ten offense. This is, I think this is the most complete team in AFC, and I think they have the ability to go up to New England and win. But, boy, that's, you know, again, that's the second straight week they're going to play uh, an East Coast team. They're traveling three time zones for the game. Um, it, it, it's going to be tough. And, and, again, it is the Patriots. Patriots at home, as, as Clark will tell you, are, they, they don't lose at home in January. So it'll be a tall challenge, but I, I think the Chargers may be the better team on the field, more, the more complete team, but there's a mystique up there that's going to be hard. Hey, Goose, quick question for you. Do you think that 1 o'clock start is a big deal for them because West Coast teams have complained about it before, and they've got to do it now two weeks in a row? Right, and that's, it, that's the challenge, and that's the challenge all these wildcard teams face. You've got, you got to do it on the road, and that's, that's a long road. Okay, well, I was going to ask you guys about the all-pro team, especially you, Goose, but I don't need to because we have John Turney returning. Yeah, he's, we convinced him to stick around. He's right here, and he can give us his take on that team. He's coming up right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. NFL historian John Turney, a pro football journalist, not only was kind enough to join us in the first hour, but he won't leave the room. He's back. We're happy to have him. Now we're going to take a tour around the league's best and brightest. Only this has nothing to do with the Hall's class of 2015 and everything to do with last week's All-Pro team. Rick and I all vote on that after Clark. John does not, but he should, because he studies these guys, which is why we asked him back. Uh, first of all, John, thanks for hanging around. Uh, it's my pleasure and my honor. Uh, second, we've seen your all-pro team. Uh, and, you know, there are a few discrepancies between uh, the way uh, we see things and the way you did. Um, where was the most notable one, in your opinion, between your team and the sort of official uh, all-pro team? 
Well, I was really glad and, 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 and kind of proud to stick with Damon Harrison as a nose tackle, as a different position than a rush tackle, a three technique. To me, he had 81 tackles. 30 of them were for a one-yard gain or less. Fletcher Cox was a much better pass rusher, as we all know, but he only had 13 out of his tackles that were a yard gain or less. So I put, I put Fletcher Cox as the second team pick behind Aaron Donald, which I think he's the, the second best rush tackle in the league. Now what about the wide receiver? You had DeAndre Hopkins and Julio Jones on your first team, and quite honestly, I had Antonio Brown and Tariq Hill on my first team, and you had them on your second team. Uh, and there's no uh, Michael Thomas. Uh, anyway, uh, what were you thinking on those guys in that position? Well, Goose has seen my wide receiver rating chart. Essentially, I count touchdown percentage as a statistic and also yards per catch, which, which everybody does. And when you make all of those about equal, the guy that comes out on top in that statistic this year was Tyree Kill. But then, of course, I wanted to use the eye test and who I would want on, on my team, and these were all very close. I think I sent you guys the chart, but just briefly, there were one guy with a score of 100 and four guys with a score of 98. And I used the eye test to put Julio Jones and Hopkins first and Tyreek Hill on the second team. Jones only had nine touchdowns out of 125 catches, which is, what, 8%, 7% touchdowns, and an 11.2 yards per catch average. So that's what knocked him down, and I had him ranked sixth. I had Mike Evans in front of him as well. Yeah, frank, frankly, I had I had Hopkins and Thomas myself, but on to another position. I had Zeke Elliott as my first team running back over Gurley and Christian McCaffrey as my flex. You had Elliott first team, Barkley second team, Gurley your flex. Neither one of us mentioned Alvin Kamara. Give us your thought process in sorting out a really quality bunch of backs this season. Well, it was it was it was really hard to pick, and I did have Kamara as my second team flex behind Gurley. Flex isn't really a position. It's really yeah. just the, it's been the second team running back position or the second running back position since they've reshuffled how it's worked. But I just really picked two running backs. Really, was Gurley and Elliott. Since since the dawn of time, there's always been two running backs on the All Pro team. Even when they had a fullback, they just had 12 people on offense during all those years. But it was Elliott is a great player. Gurley missed a couple of games, and he still led the league with 21 touchdowns. And he and Elliott are both great pass blockers. They're going to maybe end up in that same group we talked about in the first hour of right. pass blockers. And, and Barkley was hard to leave him off because he was every bit as good as the other guys. It's one of those things where, you know, it was, I know this is sexist, but you had El McPherson and, and Cheryl Teagues and Stephanie Seymour, and how are you going to pick? <laughs> That's why you're paid the big bucks. <laughs> John, I voted for Jason Myers as my kicker. I was one of the few, apparently, and so did you. Tell our listeners what you and I saw that everyone else missed. Well, you put it in the, in the distance of his kicks. I go by a statistic that I, don't, I obviously did not invent, but the NFL uses it. You can find it on NFL GSIS. It ranks their kicks but weights them towards the distance. And this year, Jason Myers was four and a half field goals above average. Nobody else was was really close. Tucker was around 2.2. So in other words, he was seven to ten points better, right. all things being equal, than everybody else based on distance. So And also, he didn't kick any kickoffs out of bounds or screw anything up that way. And he also, I think it was a, a very high percentage of 
touchbacks. So in terms of being the kicker, he did miss a few. It wasn't a perfect year for him, but he was better than everybody else. He was the best kicker. John, okay, I noticed there was no Quentin Nelson. What's up with that? Well, um, I'll just put it this way. There are sources in the league that we all talk to. Um, Can't really go into them. But uh, Nelson, as good as he was as a run blocker, he did get called for holding uh, five times during the regular season. Six times, I'm sorry. Plus one in the playoffs that got called, one that didn't. He had trouble with pass protection. If you beat him across his face, he'd mug you. And he was, according to my sources, the second highest rated guard on the Colts. I just couldn't go with him. Hmm. How about safety? You went with a rookie, and you went Justin Simmons, which kind of surprised me. Yes, again, that was, you know, I thought this guy's making a lot of plays, so I made a few phone calls and confirmed to me that he was playing it technically perfectly. He could, he's got the range for a free safety that others don't, and he just didn't have the errors, the missed tackles. And he was one of those sleeper picks that, that Paul Zimmerman used to come up with once in a while. Yeah. And I had, um, for the, 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 Nico, the slot cornerback, my two choices were King and Fitzpatrick. I went King, but apparently those are your two choices as well. Yes, I, I think I, re- I know I reversed them. But, yeah, yeah they were the, the non-starting cornerbacks that, that had the most impact. Another one I had a tough time with was tight end. I thought this was a really good and deep pool of tight ends. You, we both went with Kelsey. You went with Kittle, second team. Give me a thought process on the tight ends. Again, it, it was two things. Uh, one, I went by that receiving statistic as a starting point, and Kelsey was first. Kittle was second. Ertz was third. Again, the yards per catch made a difference. Then I looked at the touchdowns, and then I looked at the blocking. Kittle is a better blocker than Ertz. Kelsey's a good enough blocker to be first team, and his numbers were better than everybody else on a more impactful offense. But if it's third and seven, I think I would run Ertz on my team more than the others because he's got the best hands. But I went with Kelsey first because he was the best combination of receiving and blocking. Uh, Kittle didn't quite have the touchdowns. He wasn't used in the red zone as much. Of course, the 49ers didn't get to the red zone as much, so that was maybe not as fair. But, you know, when you're again, if you've got three great players and you have to decide, you've got a nitpick, and I put Kelsey first. John, was quarterback at all a tough pick for you? No, it was a rare season. I know he's young, but not only did he pass the statistical test with 50 touchdown passes and running for a few more, he passed the eye test, you know, that Brett Favre thing, that intangible thing, like, well, how do you make that throw? Things we used to love about Favre and Elway and the great players. So it wasn't hard at all to me. And your, uh, your 4-3 rush end, you had Cameron Jordan. That surprised some people. Well, to me, I, that, was, that was one of the hardest picks, and for the second year in a row it's been the hardest pick. I, the scores were amazingly close. Um, he had the sacks, but what I liked about him is when they go to a 3-4 look, he plays outside linebacker, mm-hmm. so versatility points there. And I've seen him in the, in the zone blitz where he will drop off into a hook zone, check his guy on his side, and then pick up a crosser route and cover him well. And he just does things that the others cannot do as well or that are even asked to do. So I went with him over. Lawrence was right there with him. And Kalis Campbell, who had 28 yeah. Sacks plus stuff was my second team pick there. Yeah, and because they didn't win, he's forgotten, right? And that's... Yeah, it's like all of a sudden, last year he was the, the Riders Defensive Player of the Year. This right. year he plays just as well, and he gets no votes. No yeah. votes at all from anybody. And I, th- I thought uh, 
linebacker was competitive. You know, Leonard, Keekley, Wagner, you had David. I had uh, Leighton Van Der Esch. Was Van Der Esch at all a factor for you? Oh, yeah. He was, he was on my uh, all-conference team uh, as well, but he just lost out. The way I pick him is different than what the AP. I think the AP just has you pick three linebackers. Yeah. And for the second year in a row, the AP voters picked two middle linebackers, and this year they did pick a, you know, an off-the-ball linebacker. Previously, they have been picking two middle linebackers and a rushbacker. Right. But I picked one middle linebacker, one outside off-the-ball linebacker, and one rush linebacker, and I went with Leonard and Khalil Mack. So, yeah, uh, Ben Drake, he didn't have as many plays behind the line of scrimmage as David or as, as Leonard. So and, that and was cor- the deciding factor there. And a cornerback, you had two guys that, that not many people had, Lattimore and Griffin, over the more popular, popular picks, Gilmore and, and Jones and those people. What did you yeah, see in again, Lattimore? Again, I had help there. It's very difficult for me to grade cornerbacks yeah. not having played the position. And so I had to make a few calls on those. And Lattimore I saw a lot, and he just seemed glued to the receiver all the time. And Shaquille Griffin, just every time I saw him, he reminded me of Sherman. Now with cornerbacks, as you guys know, all of them get beat from time to time. Right. And how do you pick a guy who gets beat or misses a tackle? It's just a really difficult position to play in the NFL. And if they do a great play... 20%, 30% of the time they get called for a flag. And so how do you hold that against them? So I went with the guys I thought were the most consistent and then confirmed it with what I consider to be the best experts in the field. So that's the thought process for the, the backfield. Yeah, I love, I love your pick of Ryan Ramzak of the, of the Saints. I put him as my right tackle as well. I, I thought that was a very, very good pick on your part. Right. And, and, then, and I think you folks realize that there's the AP, I think they need to come up with like a computer thing where you guys can log in and then you can fill in bubbles. Right. That way you don't get two guys getting votes yeah. at separate positions, and they just need to decide what a person is. Having J.J. Watt getting 10 votes as an inside rusher yeah. hurts the guys that are also defensive interiors. And then, and then seeing Von Miller's second team on both as a linebacker, you know, he's either a, a rush end or a, he's either an edge guy or a linebacker. Somebody needs to decide which one. Yeah. Well, John, we really appreciate you stopping by and holding over for the two segments, and uh, we love your insight as always. And, boy, I sure wish one year to get you on that Hall of Fame committee. That'd be great. Well, it would be an honor, but, you know, I, I appreciate you saying that. Thanks, John. Thank you. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we promised you Jake Plummer, and he's here with us now. Jake, of course, is one of the members of the College Football Hall of Fame class of 2019, and for good reason. He was a legendary quarterback at Arizona State, where, as a senior, he led the Sun Devils to an undefeated regular season. That included a 19-0 defeat of Nebraska that snapped the Cornhuskers' 2016 win streak and where he won a Pac-10 championship with the conference's Offensive Player of the Year and was a third-place finisher in the Heisman Trophy voting. Now, Jake set a litany of records at ASU, including 34 straight games with a touchdown, rushing, or passing. Before going on to the pros, where he played with Arizona and Denver, it was 40-18 and with the Broncos, including the playoffs, and led them to the 2005 AFC Championship game. Jake, first of all, congratulations on reaching the College Football Hall. And second, thanks so much for joining us. 
Hey, I appreciate it. I'm uh, honored to be on the show. Uh, and thanks for that recap of, of, of what, you know, I didn't expect being a young kid out of Boise, Idaho to accomplish much more, but I had a dream and, uh, it happened, man. Somehow, some way with a lot of help along the way, some great teammates, great coaches. Um, I'm, I'm honored and humbled to be inducted into the Hall of Fame and, uh, just real thankful to represent all those guys that, that had a part of it, all my teammates and coaches and part of ASU, the administration and teachers, everybody involved in that. I'm just thankful to be that guy representing that, that little era there and uh, definitely honored and humbled. Okay, Jake, let's talk about that College Football Hall of Fame. Uh, a, was it a surprise to you? And B, how meaningful is it to you? Well, you know, it, it was a surprise to even be nominated when Mark Brand, the head SID at ASU, nominated me a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, I, I never was much for individual awards. And, uh, you know, I knew as a quarterback I was really only as good as my team would play for me. And that, that, that being said, you know, this definitely is an honor for me individually, but it's more, like I said, a representation of, of everybody on that team and those, those that era and my, my guys, the trainers and weight coaches that helped me along the way. And I was extremely surprised, but, but like I said, I've been honored and, I know I had a great career at ASU, and that last year was really remarkable. I mean, we, we really have uh, set an impression on a lot of young ASU football fans, both young and old, that still talk about that season that ended in a tough loss, you know, still today. You know, it's very, very rare you get to be involved in anything like that, and I had the, the pleasure of being involved in, with that team. And so this is really a reflection of everyone involved with that, from Bruce Snyder recruiting me out of Boise, Idaho, Danny Cazetto and Bobby Petrino, and getting there and battling Jason Verdugo from Tucson for, to be the backup guy my freshman year, you know, getting a chance to play as a freshman and then, you know, try to lead those guys. And along the way, you know, my linemen, everybody that had a part in just letting me become that, that the leader that I became there at ASU and the coaches had patience in me. And, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was super surprised, very honored and thankful for everybody that played a part in it. Well, speaking of that last season, there are people and, and a lot of people who believe your senior year was the best in ASU football history. And I'm wondering, is there one game, one moment, one play, you name it, from that year that you keep with you and that you replay over and over in your mind? There were a lot of them, you know. I mean, there were so many moments. I think I'd have to go back to to maybe the, the, the year before when it was just we knew then we had a pretty good team, except we just weren't playing up to our potential. And we went to Nebraska, and they really – they handled us. They beat us pretty good. And uh, I knew that we had a chance if we just change a little bit of that culture or just get a couple guys, and sure enough, we did. And so that was, you know, that was one moment that stood out for sure that night, the year before when they, they whooped us down there in Nebraska. And, you know, the, the moment I think that really turned the tide during that season the, to pinpoint one would be the night before that Nebraska game because, you know, the, the way they beat us the year before, you know, they were overconfident and coming off a national title and, they had just handled us in, in Lincoln. So, uh, as players, we knew the, the work we put in that summer, all of us stayed. Every single one of us was there playing or working out. But I said playing first. It was summer. We were working out in the mornings, and then we'd go play in the afternoons, you know. But we were having fun as a team, and we grew. And that night before the Nebraska game, we, we had a team-only meeting, and everybody just had a chance to kind of say what they felt. And the general consensus was that, that, that even – I think even our coaches didn't really believe we could beat them, but I know by every individual in that room that each one of us 
we knew that we could beat those guys as players. We knew this. And uh, that was really a special moment because guys had never had really ever said much or stepped up and, and, and call, like, called it out like it was, like, hey, this is our chance. Guys that hardly ever spoke were, were fired up, and, and there were some tables turned over and chairs thrown around. And, you know, we, we, got, we got after it as a team, just a team. And, and we knew, so going into that game, that it was just us. And, uh, yeah, man, it was an amazing win, and it kind of catapulted us onto the national scene. And from there, we just kept having remarkable games where we'd pull it out somehow, some way. The defense would step up, or the offense would step up, or the special teams would step up, or whatever it was. The fans would step up, and we, we really rolled it out and had a really remarkable year. And you say it's one of the most memorable seasons in ASU history, but we were laughing about that with Big Juan Roque and Kyle Murphy and Vince Amy, some guys I saw a couple of weeks back that uh, we lost the Rose Bowl, and it's still the season most people talk about in ASU history, and we lost the end of our season with a loss. And so it really was remarkable that, that that's still such a, uh, such a talked-about and very um, you know, memorable season, even with the loss at the end. So it goes to say, that, you know, without saying, the guys on that team and the, assemb- the, the cast that Bruce Snyder assembled uh, of, of characters and individuals, we remained ourselves. And we welcomed each other, and we cared about each other, and that was one of the most important things and mottos for Bruce Snyder was to care about each other as a team. And, and we really did, and it showed, and that was a remarkable year. And that's why you know, this is just – this College Football Hall of Fame is for that team and everybody that helped us get to that year of 96 along the way. Jake, we should mention – we should mention, in addition to being an All-America on the field, you were a two-time academic all-conference in the classroom. How difficult was it balancing, balancing studying with football? You know, it was tough. It definitely was. Uh, you know, and, and, and back in the day there, we, we had a social life, too, because there were no cameras out everywhere. You know, nowadays, if any kid goes anywhere, uh, someone's filming him. And back then, we could actually go out and do fun things without anybody posting that we were out doing what maybe, maybe we shouldn't have been doing sometimes, but we were still out. Uh, having fun, and I know school was, was a big part of it. Uh, for me, I went to class every day. I mean, there were days I missed uh, once in a while if, if, if uh, you know, injured and things like that, but I would always make sure that, that the teacher knew that I wasn't just ditching class. You know, education was important to me. My mom made sure that when I was growing up, and I knew and, and, and understood that, you know, if you didn't get your grades, you know, there's a, they're going to punish you and make you – get up early at 6 a.m. and go to study hall. So, you know, you, 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 by way of not wanting to go through that, you know, you study, you take the time, you carve it out in your schedule, and that's just part of what the beauty of being, a, you know, in college and being an athlete student is that you've got to learn how to, how to, you know, prioritize and manage your time. And uh, it, it definitely teaches you a lot, and, and I was glad to be able to be present in those classes. It was fun for me to be on campus and meet students and, and be one of them and be in class, and teachers really appreciated it, and I think, a lot of our guys on that team, we all loved going to class. We made it a, a big point to make sure we stayed eligible because we knew we had some special players. You know, speaking of the Cardinals, how tough was it to stay in the same town where you were a legend in college? And, and when your team yeah. said you were treated like a god, how tough was it to live up the expectations? Well, you know, there were some tough, t- tough times and tough things to go through, but for me it was a really easy transition. I was familiar with the town and had a lot of friends and fam- uh, not family, friends and support locally that I'd, I'd grown to know through the four years at ASU. And it made that transition to the NFL a lot easier because I had eyeballs on me and people that weren't afraid to say, hey, now you better you know, do this. Make sure you're taking care of yourself where if you're in a new city, you don't have that. And uh, it was very valuable. It was handy. It was nice. It was convenient and comfortable and helped that transition. And 
I won't lie, man. My first start against the, uh, the Houston Oilers or Tennessee Oilers, they, uh, they, they gave me a standing ovation, and I threw four picks that game. They cheered every time I came out on the field. So, you know, that doesn't happen in New York if I, if I go to New York <laughs> as the quarterback. So, you know, there were some good things. Um, it was definitely a fun time playing ball uh, at Arizona. And through my years, it's, it's more, you know, the guys I played with. And I have to mention, you know, rest in peace, Kwame Lasseter, uh, one of my favorite all-time teammates that I've ever played with, just a, a competitor, an undrafted guy out of Kansas that just he, – he, he loved ball like I did. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry to see him leave too early. A lot of people out there, my thoughts out to his family and Erica. And, you know, it, this dishonor just makes me think back to all the great guys I know and have met along the way and, uh, and I've been able to influence and, and hopefully, you know, show some kid somewhere that, hey, don't, don't be ashamed to dream as big as you can because – you know, that's your dream. Don't let anybody dictate what your dream is. And mm-hmm. if you get there, great. If you don't, you know, no sweat. Just have fun along the way trying to do it. Mm-hmm. And I really did. I had a lot of fun along the way. Well, Jake, with the comfort you felt in Phoenix, how difficult was it then to make the move to Denver? And then after your success there, how difficult was it to sit down after that 7-4 and four start in 2006, especially after you've taken that team to the conference championship game? Yeah, you know, it, it was tough to leave Arizona. I really I had a lot of respect for that organization. Um, you know, things didn't go as well as I was hoping they would after that 98 year. And, and years pr- after that, you know, it, it, we just we suffered some injuries and some tough years, and I didn't play my best. Played through some injuries I probably shouldn't have. And, you know, after six years, I was surprised they were ready to let me go, and, and the Cardinals really didn't even – they had a small offer, but it wasn't as much because they knew. I think they knew I was ready to go, uh, you know, go somewhere else. And myself, knowing that I wasn't going to play much longer than maybe 10 years was my goal, I wanted to go right away where I knew, hey, they're doing everything possible to win a Super Bowl. So when I got to the Broncos, you know, that was, that was really a lot of fun that they were coming off of, of being Super Bowl champs not too long back. And that's just an organization that, uh, you know, knows how to do it. So I felt it was a lot of fun to, to play uh, up to what I felt, you know, I, I could play and, and have the guys around me that, that, that allowed that. And, uh, you know, not to say I didn't have some amazing guys around me in Arizona, but we just somewhat, somehow, some way, that didn't, it didn't happen there post-98 uh, season. Uh, but getting the Broncos was awesome. Um, you know, they treated me well. They took what I could do best and, and, and put that out on the field, gave me the opportunity to do that, and then also pushed me along to become a better quarterback. And, 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 and I was allowed to be the leader that I – that I am, that I was, you know, to be free and to lead how I wanted. And they gave me that, that room, which was awesome. Uh, when it was taken away, it was really hard. When I got benched, it was really tough. But, you know, I was ready to go that year prior. I was hoping we'd go to the Super Bowl and win, and I could retire right then on, on the stand with the MVP trophy in my hands and say, thank you, I'll see you later. Because <laughs> we were close, you know, to my dream, my childhood dream. And it didn't happen, so I came back from my senior year. and Hey, or my not my senior year, but my 10th year, and uh, – when I got benched, it was really hard. But then, uh, you know, I did get a chance to enjoy those last five weeks, uh, not being the focus of the win or the loss, not, not being told, you know, the stresses you have to go through as a starting quarterback. I, I really enjoyed just the nuances of, the, of, of being a player, you know, getting up and getting on the bus and the bus ride to the stadium and getting into the stadium early. And I went around and, and would smell and look around and just feel it and, and, and validate my career. And, and so it wasn't as hard as most people would think. It actually was kind of fun. The, the stress was off. I wanted to play bad, but I was having fun also trying to help the team just, just win from the bench and, and be a leader still. So 
uh, not the way you want to go out, but I was glad to leave. And when I did leave, um, it was good. It was time. I missed the game, of course. Every player misses it. But, hey, uh, my life is good now. I've got three beautiful kids and an awesome wife, and uh, I'm enjoying life. And, and I can't have any regrets because uh, where I'm at right now is, is really awesome. Jay, thanks so much for the time, and congratulations again on making the College Football Hall of Fame. Hey, guys, thank you. I'm extremely honored, and uh, I really appreciate you giving me some time to share some stories, and I uh, can't wait to see to see the guys that are going in with me. There's some ballers in that class. I can't wait for the whole deal to go down in next, in next December. It's going to be fun. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Jake. That was former quarterback hey, guys, Jake Summer, 2019 inductee into the College Football Hall of Fame. Up next, Dubin Adrill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're almost out of time, so let's hear it, Robert. That's the two-minute warning. That means we're on to the two-minute drill. So, Ronnie, take us home. So, Joe Flacco has replaced Lamar Jackson against the Chargers. Absolutely. His arm is good for something other than a handoff and fumble. If John Unitas on the bench to replace Jackson, it's Joe Flacco. You pause. Did Gus Bradley give NFL coaches a blueprint for how to be a Jackson-led offense? No. When you're facing the Venus de Milo quarterback, you should be able to figure it out for yourself. If the blueprint features seven sacks, then yes, Bradley has shown the world how to be Jackson and every other quarterback for that matter. Dak Prescott, Lamar Jackson, or Josh Allen? Dak, he can throw and pass. I still think Allen has the most upside. Jared Goff, Patrick Mahomes, or Baker Mayfield? Mahomes, only one to appear on the Talk of Fame Network. The guy who figured to be the MVP of the league, Patrick Mahomes. Has Josh McDaniel has become unemployable as a head coach outside of the Wingland after only one team of eight with eight openings asked to speak to him? No, because he doesn't have to leave New England to become a head coach. Like most teams have figured out, McDaniels is in a holding pattern waiting for Belichick to retire. How does a guy who's offensive coordinator finish 25th in points scored and 27th in yards and get a promotion to Packer head coach? He's not the head coach. Aaron Rodgers is. The NFL has replaced the six degrees of Kevin Bacon with the six degrees of Sean McVay. Of the 12 playoff teams, six started with quarterbacks younger than 25. Is this the year of the millennial? No, because three of the remaining quarterbacks are 37 or older. Not if Drew Brees or Tom Brady reaches the Super Bowl, it's not. <laughs> Should the Eagles suck out their dog masks this weekend in New Orleans? Sure, they're in New Orleans, so no one will notice. <laughs> well, they certainly played like dogs in that 48-7 loss to the Saints in November. <laughs> oh, ouch! Well, let's full prove there really is an old St. Nick again this weekend. No, he'll prove there's a young one. Foles is the second-best quarterback come out of Austin, Texas, for Westlake. The best guy he's facing this week, Drew Brees. That's the We'd like to thank Tom Flores, Jake Plummer, and John Turney for joining us, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us again, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, thatbetalkofamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, check in next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too.